Well, good morning again. I'm so thankful that you're here today. Thank you for being here. We're thankful you came to cho you chose to come and worship with us. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much uh, for being present with us as well. Because we do need a living hope, don't we? If you've been paying attention this past week, you've gotten a really stark, heavy dose and look at despair. And this past week, I was reminded about how far men and women will go to avoid despair and death in search of hope. Many of you saw those images of that aircraft leaving that that facility, that, that airport in Afghanistan. And you saw in desperation as people were clinging to the sides of that plane because they believed that would be better than whatever it was they would be facing right there in their own country. It was in a sheer act of desperation. Some of them fell to their deaths. And there was one body found in the wheel well of that aircraft after it had landed. Why? They knew their own country. They knew that in their own country there was going to be no hope. And that event stands as a testament to the desperate attempts men will make when their situation seems hopeless. I hope that none of us ever find ourselves in anything close to a situation like what just happened there uh, in Afghanistan. But then again, we have to deal with other events and issues that happen in our own lives. And every single day, we have to make a decision where we are going to place our own hopes because there are temptations to place it in places that it doesn't belong. I think there's a good story that illustrates this. It was written by a guy named D.A. Carson. Maybe you can relate to what I'm about to read here. He said, did you ever have a day that runs something like this? You get up in the morning. You stub your toe on a nail sticking out of a board that you should have fixed three years ago. You go to the car. You put your key in the ignition. It doesn't start. You get to work late. Your boss says, have you finished that report yet? You're staying late tonight if you haven't. The whole day unfolds in one endless set of irritants. You, you make your way home and your spouse has cooked a disgusting stew that your kids like but you detest. The kids that night are not behaving well at all. Could have been whatever. Maybe you found out you, you had a test as the teacher was handing it out. I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's time for bed. And after a long day like that, you said your prayer sounds something like this. Dear God, it's been a rotten day. I'm not particularly proud of myself. Frankly, I'm ashamed, but I don't have anything to say. I'm sorry, should have done better. Forgive my sin. Bless everybody in the world. Your will be done in Jesus' name, amen. But then, a few days later, you wake up. The sun is shining, the windows are open, fresh air is wafting through the screens, you hear the birds singing, and you've got a wonderful quiet time with your spouse. You eat a hearty breakfast, you go to your car, the ignition starts right up, vroom, you take off, you're early for work. Your boss says, wonderful to see you today. Did I tell you you're going to get a raise? Go ahead and take off early today. 
you arrive home, joyous family dinner, the kids are behaving, you have intimate conversation with your spouse, the two of you clean up the kitchen together, and at the end of the day, you get down to pray, and your prayer goes something like this. Eternal and matchless God, we bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you have poured favor out upon us. And you pray for the missionaries and their children. You pray for your first cousins twice removed. You meditate on all the names of Jesus Christ that you can think of in Scripture. An hour goes by, you go to bed, you instantly fall asleep. And indeed, you go to sleep justified. On which of these two occasions have you placed your hopes on the wrong thing? When we set up our expectations on a fallen world, we can expect depression and disillusionment. But the only way we're ever going to overcome our consciences, our circumstances, our sins, our bad tempers, our defeats, our lusts, our fears, our pettiness is on the basis of one thing and one thing alone, the blood of Jesus Christ. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can hold our hope. I'm going to talk about this morning is how do I place my hope in Christ alone? How do I place my hope in Christ alone? If Christ alone can really be the only living hope that's ever going to mean anything in this life, well, then how do you go about doing that? We're going to start a new sermon series this morning from the book of John. We're going to start with John chapter 1 this morning. We're going to read that entire chapter, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him know. You may be seated. Like I stated before, we're starting a new series from the book of John called A Living Hope, and we're going to walk through the gospel of John together. Now, there's, there's four of these gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell very similar stories. John 
takes a different view of things. Matthew mainly wrote to the Jews. Marcus focused, Mark focused on the ministry of Christ. Luke, the Gentiles. And then we get to the book of John. And it takes a different turn. John is going to focus on depths of truth about Christ that the other Gospels are not focusing on. As a matter of fact, if you're wondering why there's an eagle up on the screen, that's because historically the church associated an eagle with the Gospel of John. They felt that the Gospel of John was lofty and taught high truth about Jesus Christ. Therefore, they symbolized that in stained glass windows and stone reliefs as an eagle. And we are going to go into those depths of Jesus Christ as we go through the book of John. We're going to begin with this first chapter. And the rest of the Gospel of John is really a commentary on the themes that are set up here in this very first chapter of John. This morning, I want to focus on this subject of hope. And I'll look at the text this way as we, as we walk our way down through it. First, we're going to see Christ revealed. In those very first verses of chapter 1 of John, we, we go into some depths of who Jesus is. And after that, we'll see the world exposed. Christ came as the light. He came as the light to expose the darkness, to show men they needed a Savior. And then finally, we'll talk about the hope provided, the hope that is provided to us through Jesus Christ. Coming to earth, becoming man to fix the problem of sin's consequences. I want to start then with this revelation, this revealing of who Christ is. And we see it in those first five verses. It starts out with the first verse with this phrase, In the beginning was the Word. John's looking back. He's looking all the way back to the very beginning of all things. And he's saying, there was the Word. And I remember, I, I remember uh, memorizing this verse as a, as a kid, John 1.1. 1, 1. And I, it made no sense to me. What does this mean? I mean, a word is a word. Like, you know, it's a few letters splashed on the page there. What does it mean that Jesus is the word? We'll find out later he's talking about Jesus. But he's saying, in the beginning of all things, before the existence of the universe as we know it, Jesus became a human being. But this idea of word comes from the word logos. And logos has got, it's got a range of meaning. If, you, if you're not aware of it, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, so there's Greek words that were uh, translated into English. But this word logos, that word, the Greek word for word, in the Old Testament there was an idea that there was the wisdom of God. It was personified. It was like the wisdom of God was, was so identifiable and real that it was almost like a person. Then in the New Testament, the word logos, it has to do with the idea of, of reason or thought or philosophy. There was a lot of Greek philosophy going on at the time of the New Testament. So calling the word, calling him logos, referred to this, this idea of the wisdom of God becoming a person. Through this logos, the significance of Christ comes there's another root meaning here that has to do with that which stands behind. So this is an extremely deep thought right here at the very outset in the book of John. And, and John, it seems to mean an identifiable person talking about this, who also may be thought of as the reason or thought of God that came forth as God, acted in creation, 
and then was revealed to be this distinct person named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being the self-expression of God's thoughts, his mind, and his reason. Now that's, you know, I was, I was an engineer before I became a pastor, and that's a very sort of an abstract idea. And I've had brilliant people try and explain that to me, but the fact is there's some mystery to this. That a person named Jesus Christ, who was fully God, came and was the expression of God. And then this eternal mind and this reason in the person of Jesus Christ was also the means through which all creation exists. That's verse, verse 3. The universe, then, displays the reason, the mind of God. Those are some big thoughts. The text also says that he was with God and that he was God. There was never a time when Jesus Christ was not. He was present right there at the time of creation and eternally before that and eternally forward. His humanity had a beginning point. However, he existed before he became human. Now, the early church struggled with this because, again, these are big thoughts. What, what does it mean, then, that, that Jesus was born but yet always was there was a man by the name of Arius as a matter of fact that led a great big mega church in Egypt around 300 AD and he kind of messed this up because he began teaching his people that there was a time when Jesus was not Jesus was the first of God's creation and the greatest of God's creation but yet he was a created being now the rest of the people around at that time the Christians said I don't think that's quite right so they decided to have a great big meeting in a place called Nicaea. And they said, we're going to figure this out. And they came up with a creed to describe who Christ was. It became known as the Nicene Creed. And the portion there about Christ says, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they were professing and they came up with as the truth about God. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And then listen to this, begotten, not made. What does that mean? Well, it means he was born a person. However, he was not created. He'd always been of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. That was the confession of the church. And it stood now for 1,700-some years. Now, you may say, well, Chad, that's, that's not Scripture. Well, this is what they came to understand the Scripture was saying. If you can come up with something better, feel free. It's just that in 1,700 years, nobody's come up with anything better than this. Notice that line, light from light. That comes from here in John 1, verses 4 and 5, that in Christ was first of all life. There was life. That theme's going to come up again in John chapter 5. You see it in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, what does that mean? The relationship here in chapter 1 between God and the Word, it's going to be identical throughout the book of John to the relationship between the Father and the Son. They have self-existing life, meaning they have life that was given to them by no one. However, life that was given to everybody else was given to them by their power. So in God, in the Word, in Christ, 
you find self-sustaining life, life that was never created. The theme of light also comes into view. The theme of light is going to go down to verse 9, and light comes in to reveal the darkness. The darkness being that which is evil in the world. That which Christ came to save. Evil, humanity, and their thoughts and their actions. And Christ came to show us what it was. So here in the beginning of John, we get this deep, rich understanding of who Jesus is and then what he came to do. He came to expose the darkness. He came to expose that which we may be tempted to put our hope in, but which can never really sustain and hold the weight of the hope that we need. It'll go on in verses 6 through 8. It talks about the, the mission of John the Baptist to bear witness to Christ, to show the light, not that he was the light. He said, I'm, I'm coming here to show the witness, to bear witness to the light that's to come. And then we get to this next section, and we see the world exposed. We see the world exposed. The light of Christ coming into the world creates a contrast. And he comes in with light, and he reveals things. We see it in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, why does the text say the true light? True, this word, it's a, it's a Greek word, aletheia, and it, it has the idea of meaning. Uh, it has the idea of realness. That Christ didn't come to give his opinion. He didn't come to give you a kind of truth. That's postmodern thinking. No. There was false light. There was other teaching. This is the true light. Christ came to give the true light to reveal the darkness. Manna as it's talked about in the Gospel of John, was, was bread given from God. However, Jesus is going to go on to say, I'm the true bread. Later on in the book of John, Israel is called God's chosen vine. However, Jesus is the true vine, the real vine, the vine that gives meaning. And then the term world, it's used here. So what does it mean that that he was coming into the world. Well, the, the world is not the, in the sense of the globe, the earth that you may be thinking of. Rather, it's, it's man's way of doing things. It's the evil that's in the world. It's the unbelievers, those who've not trusted Christ, that are in the world. He's going to unpack that more later on in chapter 15, verse 19. He's going to say, if you were of the world, he's speaking to those following him. He's talking to, to those who are believing in him. And he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's the world John's talking about. He's being very careful how he's using that term world because there were those that lived at that time, uh, in John's time, called Gnostics. And they believed that all the physical world was evil, created by this god named Demiurge. I know, this is weird. Trust me, it's, it's weird. The people believe that, that there was this duality, there was good, there was evil, and they were in conflict. John's saying, no. It is the willfulness of your hearts that makes you evil. It's that you want to do evil things. He said, that's why you're evil. That's why there's evil in the world. Christ was the light that came to expose that. His own people, the Jews, rejected him. An unbelieving world didn't know him. We see that in verses 
10 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected. The Jews rejected Christ, and an unbelieving world didn't know him. Now, they stand in contrast, again, to those people we see later in verses 12 and 13, which says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in contrast to the unbelieving world, you have this group of people, the children of God, Believing in his name, that is to say, believing in the character of Christ, believing in who he said that he was. They were born not of blood. In other words, he's saying it wasn't because you're a descendant of Abraham. That doesn't get you into the kingdom. That doesn't save you. Nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it wasn't that act of procreation that brought you into the world. Nor of the will of man, but of God. So Christ exposed these false hopes of the world. In John's time, I was hoping that you could be a good enough person. If I'm just good enough, that'll sort of get me into good favor of God. That'll, that'll get me into his kingdom. But no, it doesn't work that way. You could never keep the law well enough to be saved. It's true then, it's true today. Just being good, just coming to church, that's not what saves you. And nothing in this world will be able to hold your hopes. Let me ask you something. What is it that you're hoping in this morning? What is it you've got your hopes placed in? Is it a high salary? What is it the hope that drives you? What do you feel this world can offer you that can't be taken away? Because there's nothing in this world that can't be taken away from you. Do you have your hopes in a, a person that, that they'll be everything, or losing weight, or looking younger, or achieving whatever status you think is going to bring you an identity that you really want. It won't. It's, it, there's a movement, actually, it's interesting, it started just in recent years. It's called the I Wish I'd Never Been Born movement. It's emerged in different places and parts of the world. As a matter of fact, just this past February, I'm sorry, February 2020, there was a 27-year-old young man, an Indian young man named Raphael, 27 years old. He announced he was suing his parents for birthing him. He said, it was not our decision to be born. He said, human existence is totally pointless, Mom and Dad. It's your fault, and I'm suing you. And this has been going around for a while. It started back in 2006 in South Africa. There was a philosopher, leave it to a philosopher, named David Benatar. He wrote a book, Never, Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. He says this, Life is a procession of frustrations and irritations. Many lonely people remain single, while those who marry, fight, and divorce. People want to be, look, and feel younger, and yet they age relentlessly. He quotes Ecclesiastes 4.3, and he also quotes a, a, a Greek philosopher named Sophocles, and he said, never to have been born is best, but if we must see the light, the next best is quickly returning from where we came. He writes that having children is intrinsically cruel and irresponsible. 
People who decide not to procreate are expressing compassion. While good people go to great lengths to spare their children from suffering, few of them seem to notice that the one and only guaranteed way to prevent all the suffering of their children is not to bring those children into existence in the first place. Wow. Think about that. I got to tell you something. I read this first in horror. And then part of me came to actually appreciate somebody to call a spade a spade. You know why? Because they're being real. I respect somebody that says, you know what, I've tried this world, I've gone as far as I can, and I'll tell you there's nothing here. Better to never have been born. I got to tell you, I think that the folks in the I wish I'd never been born movement, I think they are very close to the kingdom of God. All it's going to take for somebody to say, you know what, let me tell you about somebody. Let me tell you about a person. That same worldly despair you find in the Bible, the Bible talks about this despair. They're just kind of happenstancing their way into it. It's in the book of Job and Ecclesiastes because it's only through a life-changing relationship with Christ that meaning for life will ever, ever be found. I don't care how smart you are, how good that job is, it's not going to do it. It will disappoint you. And then you're going to have to understand that the despair that follows is going to be natural. So what do we have? Well, we've got the hope provided. We've got the hope provided. We see it in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a huge, huge thought for us. That's a massive implication for all of humankind that the word became flesh. What does that mean? It means that God himself became a human being and he chose to make himself known even to dwell among us. Literally, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's that he, he pitched his tent among us. Christ came here to be with us. And he'd reveal his glory. All through the book of John, he starts revealing his glory. You know how he does that? He's, he's doing miracles. He's showing his goodness. In John chapter 2, verse 11, he does his first miracle. He turned the water into wine. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples, they what? They believed in him. He's revealing himself. That man who lived all those centuries ago, two millennia now, he revealed himself as God. He did these miracles so people would believe him. It wasn't that he exuded some bright light. He wasn't glowing. He veiled all that. And he starts doing miracles. The eyes of faith were required, though, to understand who he was and what was going on. And then what came with Christ? It says he brought grace upon grace, this superabundance of grace available to you and I. It's good gifts that God gives us even though we didn't earn them. It's getting what we don't deserve. It goes on to, and, and explains that, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That man named Moses who came almost 2,000 years before Jesus, the law came through him. This is how you live. Jesus came and he replaces the law. He did what the law could never do. Even though the law was considered a display of God's grace in a sense because it showed people how to live, Jesus was better and could offer infinitely more than the law ever could. 
The text goes on, explains that no one has seen God. Moses himself, even though God passed by, had to, God shielded his face from him. He said, Moses, it'll, it'll kill you if, you if you see me, all of me. But the barrier still was broken because God became flesh. According to verse 17, made himself known. That phrase, made himself known, it's this, it's this Greek word that means to draw the meaning out of. In other words, Christ making himself known was drawing the meaning out of God to show us who he was. That's who Christ is. It gives us hope. Hope beyond hope. It gives us a hope physically, and it gives us a hope chronologically. The hope becomes flesh. It gives us a timeless hope, past, present, future. There's a wonderful statement written by a guy. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, he was a fourth century leader in the church. And he said this, talking about this work of Christ. He said, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. What does that mean? Again, he came in and he's saving us physically by becoming physical. It also saves us across a timeline, past, present, future. What does that mean for our past? Because you join this with Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When you, when you join these thoughts together, we see redemption happening. We see it in a past sense, and we see it in the Bible. So our, our past sins are forgiven, and we see that not only are past sins forgiven, but somehow, miraculously, I don't know how he does this, mistakes we make are redeemed. We see a man named David having an affair with Bathsheba, and yet through that affair we get the wisest man in the world, Solomon. We see a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute, and yet her great-great-great-great-great-grandson was Jesus Christ himself. We see Chad Cowan becoming a pastor here at First Baptist Church. And guess what? We are all works of redemption. Every single one of us has a past. We've done stuff we regret, and God can redeem it. You say, Chad, even when I lock my keys in my car, that's, uh, yes, yes, when you, even when I really, like when I kick the dog, I look, I'm not saying to do any of these things. But what I am saying is God can redeem miraculously. So there's this past hope. There's a present hope. We get a new identity, a new purpose. You are no longer identified as a sinner. You are a son of God. You're a child of the king. You're in Christ. And the fact that you are here and you're alive this morning means, guess what? God has something for you to do. He's got something for you to do. Get doing it. He gives you identity. He gives you purpose. And then in the future, he gives us a wonderful hope. A wonderful hope. We sang about it a lot this morning, as a matter of fact. See, Christ is no longer anywhere physically here on earth. His physical body is not present. The tomb is empty, and he's gone. He showed us what we can expect when he returns that our bodies will, like his, become whole again. As a matter of fact, after he was resurrected, later in the book of John, he appeared to Mary. And he said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
See, there's a, a hope here of, this is called the ascension. He's going to ascend into heaven. And uh, I, I was thinking about this, the, the reasons for us to celebrate the ascension. See, we, we kind of did, right, we're kind of celebrating what Christ did opposite to what happened in the Apollo 11 mission. Now, here, now here's what I mean. Jesus did the opposite of what they did in the Apollo 11 mission. Here's what I'm talking about. So in Apollo 11, some guys, they, they got into a rocket ship, and they went and they landed on the moon. And we all celebrated. This is like the greatest technological achievement of mankind. We did it. We walked on the moon. And then they, they came back to Earth. They splashed down. Then they met with Richard Nixon. He awarded them with all these medals. And we celebrated. They're home. They made it. Thank God. See, Jesus did the opposite. Jesus left the heavens. And he came down to earth. And he performed the greatest act of love and redemption of all time. And then he went through the clouds and he splashed down on heaven's shores. And what a celebration he started. He did it. He, he completed the most dangerous, most important mission of all time. He faced every temptation and he didn't give in. He faced intense hatred of mankind and he, he faced it with only truth and love. We sang, we, we sang it, the God of angel armies. He could have called down those legions of angels and he never did. He endured, and by enduring, by sacrificing himself, he did that to bring back the people of God. He defeated the devil. He destroyed death. And now he's returned in victory, and the Father welcomes Jesus home and sits him at his right hand in the place of highest honor. And I got to tell you, this morning, this passage takes on special meaning to me. I was, I was late coming into the first service this morning because I had what, what's probably the last conversation with my dad. He took a Turn for the worse, he's in an ICU in uh, West Virginia. He's got COVID, he's now got double pneumonia. He said this morning, I'm, I'm done. And we had a FaceTime conversation. It was my brother, my mom, and my dad, and, and we got to say our goodbyes. We got to tell each other we loved each other. And I got to say, Dad, I'll see you soon. Dad, this is a temporary departure. You see, I'm not just telling you these things to make you feel good. I'm not just talking about Jesus because I think I'm supposed to. I believe this to be true, that there is a future hope, that we will be reunited with loved ones. I'll see my dad again. So putting all this together, place all your hope in Christ by understanding him deeply, rejecting worldly hopes, embracing the timeless hope that he provides. I'm going to close this morning a little differently this morning. I know we're a little over time. Thank you for being patient with me. I want to do a, it's called a responsive reading. Now, some of you know these well. It's maybe the first time you've done this, but what we're going to do, I'm going to read something off the screen. You're going to respond to that by reading what's below it. This is a, a hymn that was written about John 1 in the late 1700s. I'll read, then, then you read. By the way, you're not saying this to me. You're not saying to the person to your left and your right. You're speaking this to Christ. So say it this morning like you're saying it to God. You are the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one.
In you most perfectly expressed the Father's glory shine, of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. True image of the infinite whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. But the high mysteries of your name and angels' grasp transcend. The Father only glorious claim the Son can comprehend. Throughout the universe of bliss, the center thou and son, the eternal theme of praise is this to heaven's beloved one. Worthy, O Lamb of God, are you that every need to you should bow. Please pray with me. Almighty God, maker of our life and bringer of light, God, I pray that you would expose the darkness that we have in our own lives, in our own hearts. The hopes that we have here, God, I pray would fade in light of the light that you bring. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here today without knowing they've placed their faith fully in you, Lord Jesus, and what you did. We thank you that we can enjoy victory over despair, over death, because of the hope that you bring. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. Have a wonderful day.